Welcome. You're listening to Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, the podcast that pulls back the curtains in your mind. We like to shed a little light on why you're thinking what you're thinking. Everyone has a choice in life, in what and how they think. Together, we're going to focus on high-functioning habits. There is no more time to live with any sort of regret. Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, the inspirational podcast for the inspired. Let's get into today's show with your host, Shelley R. Shearer. Hello, world. Shelley Rose Shearer here, and welcome to the show. TEDx speaker, radio show host, international best selling author, resilient master, and co founder of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. Jackie Simmons is best known for her mission to stop teen suicide. In 1995, blindsided by her 14-year-old daughter's suicide attempt, Jackie entered a world of depression, addictions, medical mysteries, and deadly silences. The journey into the world of mental health services and cultural taboos left Jackie feeling lost and alone. Okay on the outside with really, I'm fine, her most frequent response to inquiries about how she was doing, Jackie hid her deep psychic wounds from the world behind a facade of frantic entrepreneurial activity. Then on August 3rd, 2019, Jackie's now 37-year-old daughter broke the silence. Jackie wasn't ready. She calls August 3rd, 2019, the day her purpose tapped her on the shoulder. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Shelley. Appreciate that a great. I am so sorry this touched your life. Before we sort of get into this, you have a question on your, on your list of what did you do before this? You were known for something. Share that with the audience. And then we're going to go into how this journey take, took you to where you are now. My business was the collision between being a stress management consultant and mm-hmm. a business consultant. I was known for helping entrepreneurial women wrap a business around what they were good at and put together their signature talk, their seven minute message that matters, and to get their intro so solid, they could stand on it. Nice, okay. And it was at my own event where my daughter was giving her seven minute message that matters, Mm -hmm. that everything changed. Walk us through that. Because nothing like being in public and having something (laughs) life-altering and emotionally traumatic laid out for everyone to see (laughs) the morning of stephanie's talk was sunny and already warm shelly i walked into the conference room on the outskirts of sarasota florida and greeted the 12 speakers that i'd trained to deliver messages that matter Mm -hmm. stephanie looked amazing she had a dark blouse and a flowery skirt and her hair was pulled back in combs I am super proud of my daughter. She was getting into that nervous, excited state you get into right before you give a talk and everything worked. The videographer was set, the PowerPoints, the slides, it just, even the microphones worked. The audience took their seats and Stephanie was first up on the speaker's roster. The lights dimmed. I welcomed her to the front of the room. Yo, everybody help me welcome Stephanie Ashton. She walked up and confidently shook my hand and started with 3,000 teenagers will attempt to take their own lives today, just in the U.S. In the back of the room, I was stunned twice. First, because I had no idea the number was that high. And second, because I had no idea suicide was her topic. She continued with, when I was 14, after a bad day of shopping, I stood in my bathroom. The pain of not fitting into any clothes was just more proof that I didn't fit in anywhere. And that pain was more than I could bear. I took a razor and cut into my left arm, trying to end the pain and my life. In the back of the room, I could feel the blood drain from my face. Have you ever been hijacked by a bad memory? You know, Shelly, it was only my 30 years of stress management training that kept me from just crawling into a corner and bawling my eyes out. That comment makes more sense now. I read it on one of your profiles and excuse my tears. Um, 
Because yes, I think a lot of people have had days of hijack like that. I know I certainly have in my life. And the fact that you mentioned that, I thought crawling into, there was no relevance around it. You have a room full of people and I can't imagine that it was all you couldn't do not to fall to your knees. She continued with, it wasn't my only attempt. There were others. And outside of getting professional help, I've never really talked about it, especially not with mom. It was too awkward, too painful, too easy to avoid. Mm -hmm. Mom and I had the other talks. Mom and I had the talk about sex. We had the talk about drugs. We had the talk about alcohol. Then I went to college on a dry campus. That means the kegs were hidden in the showers of the girls' dorm. But we didn't talk about suicide. And I still struggle with suicidal thoughts. In the back of the room, my heart sank. And I went from pale to bone cold. When I realized the struggles that my daughter had faced alone because I didn't have the courage to have the talk about suicide. You think that is, is actually the catalyst? Not that, not that you missed the signs, but you never had the talk? Well, I had lived through her multiple suicide attempts. I mean, we did it all. We did counseling, therapy, medications, interventions, hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. And I sold myself on the idea. I bought into a myth and I sold myself on an idea. The idea was that as long as she was getting professional help, we didn't need to talk about it. After all, why bring that up again? Fair enough. I'm going to assume that can be a bit of a blanket statement for probably most parents. Would you not, would you, is that is what you've discovered in your years now with having the society? Oh yeah. And we bought into a myth and the myth is that we can put the idea back into their heads or that we might put the idea into their heads Mm. and you can't put an idea into someone's head. And I did not know that what I was doing was compounding the issue until I read a little statement at the bottom of the center for disease controls list of suicide risk factors, Mm -hmm. little statement that says not talking about suicide is in and of itself a risk factor for suicide. In small print at the bottom. It was there. It wasn't at the top of the page um, because the other things are at the top of the page. But the list and any list that tells you the signs to look for, I think are the most guilt producing documents in the world because no one goes and looks for them until after their child is attempted whether they survived or died, doesn't matter. The bottom line is we don't go looking for that information because we don't believe it applies to us. Mm-hmm. And that's not a parent's fault. It is the reticular activating system. It is the filter in the brain that is designed to screen out most of the stimuli so that we don't go insane. It lets in a tiny fraction, well under 10% of what's actually available for our brains. Hmm. And it lets it in based on the setting of your reticular activating system. This is the filter. It lets in what's most closely aligned with what you already believe. This is confirmation mm. bias. This is truth right. bias. Malcolm okay. Gladwell. That I've heard. I haven't heard of that first bit, but I definitely know that. A parent is hardwired to believe their kid is okay. We wouldn't be able to survive the rigors of parenting with any other belief. Fair enough. So we can't see the signs. Even if they're there, we can't see them. But what we know from there are all of the talks and interviews that we have done now. Is that often the first sign that someone you love is in trouble mm-hmm. is an attempt and they don't all survive. We knew that was the problem. If there are no signs and all of the programs come into play after someone is labeled at risk, mm-hmm. wait a minute, whoa, we've got this gap. There was this, this was not a crack. This is a chasm. The horse is already out of the barn now. If they survive, the horse is out of the barn. They're into the intervention. They're into the mental health community at that point. We want them to work with an intervention specialist. That's not what we do. And the reason we don't go there is one, because there are excellent programs there already. And two, because like you said, that's after the fact. So you work beforehand? We work beforehand. We are a proactive, pure prevention program provider. 
proactive, mm -hmm. pure prevention program okay. provider. We refer mm -hmm. to intervention specialists. We refer to hotlines. We have embedded in our program alerts that tell you when to stay with them and dial 911. Intervention is needed at times and you need to know when those times are. So we've created a guide that says, if this is yes and this is no, call 911. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we made it as a left brain, right brain. You know, it's yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And, and so there's no ambivalence. There's no second guessing. There's only, okay, let's ask the next question. Okay. And we, we distilled it down to the factors that make up the problem. Okay. The problem as we've defined it is that intervention, well, suicide prevention programs mm -hmm. as they're traditionally thought of, were designed to answer the question, how do you stop suicide? So by necessity, okay. they're working with people who are at risk for suicide. Mm -hmm. We realized that was leaving about 75% of the population out or more. Yes. Have no known factors. Here's the five words that triggered us to head this direction and to move fast. Okay. We didn't see it coming. I hear it almost every day now. Oh. This week, I've had more than one. You know, I have a dear friend. He knows what I do. He's been my friend since before we launched the Teen Suicide Prevention Society. And his 16-year-old relative took his own life on Monday. His father's a well-known psychologist. And he oh. was their only child. Popular, track star, soccer player, zero signs. That's why we shifted. And we shifted away from doing anything on the intervention platform because we know that if we don't get upstream, we're all going to drown. Okay. In your, in your five things, um, mm -hmm. do one of them include like the number one thing that parents need to know kind of idea? Is it oh, yeah. like a one to five? Okay. Share those, share those. Just, I'm just going to let you talk through those then. But it's, it's actually really simple. Mm -hmm. The cause is not bullying. It's not isolation. It's not screen time. It's not what you think it is. It is a lack of emotional resilience. Oh. That's it. That's this has it. been coming up so much this year with some talks that I've been in and such emotional intelligence, emotional. Mm -hmm. Or do we, are we not teaching it to our kids in school anymore? I'm, you it didn't just, get it at school. Did we get it at, not in the household? Like where you, is it? You know it where it came from? from? Where? to catch it. Okay. Emotional intelligence, emotional resilience is caught, not taught. And we used to catch it mm -hmm. sitting around a multi-generational meal. Mm -hmm. And we could watch our families have disagreements without it destroying relationships. Oh, so I like that because that has been brought up a lot recently. The fact that we like, well, look what's going on in the world with COVID. We can't disagree and not hate each other. So it's oh, permeating it, everything in life. The, For children, it's very specific in their situation. It's not just specific, but it was like, oh, we didn't quite think this through. Have you heard about safe spaces? Safe spaces bit. exist on college campuses. They exist in schools. They were originally designed to stop at-risk populations, mainly okay. people who are gender questioning or gender diverse, mm -hmm. from being bullied. Okay. Here's the problem. You go back two, three generations, you watch the old Bing Crosby movie, The Bells of St. Mary's. Mm -hmm. We used to teach our kids how to handle being bullied. It's true. We used to teach them how to bounce bullies, not how to set hard boundaries, but how to be so self-confident that we were not a target for bullies. Bullies would leave you alone if they couldn't get their emotional needs met by picking on you. They'd Very go true. And somewhere else. We're not teaching that anymore. What we're teaching our kids inadvertently is you're too fragile to handle it without intervention from an institution. We are, it's called, and it has a name, mm -hmm. learned helplessness. Oh, yes. We're teaching that without meaning to. What we tried to do was address a symptom, not the problem. Most, in my opinion, 
most of the things we do in anything in the mental health field mm -hmm. tend to be symptom-based. Let's stabilize you first, and then we'll try to figure out what the cause is. Mm -hmm. We found out by the work that we're doing that the cause and addressing the cause has the cure embedded in it. It was just that simple. Okay. So we call it the talk that saves lives. I tell you what, hey, hey Shelly, yeah. let's have some fun. Okay. Why don't we do a demo of okay. what this talk would look like so that your listeners know what it is? You got Sound it. Sound good? Absolutely. All right. So here's how it starts. Hey, Shelly, I'm part of the mission to stop teen suicide. They gave me a guide and I need to practice it. Would you have a few minutes that I can practice with you? Can you help me out? Absolutely. Thank you. It's only four questions. Are you ready? You betcha. Question one. Mm -hmm. Shelly, have you heard about the rise in teen suicides? Yes, I have. Thank you. Shelly, question two. Do you have a story? Do you have a friend who's tried or died? Personally, yes, I actually do. Thank you. Question three. Shelly, have you ever thought of leaving that way? Yes, I have. Thank you. Question four, Shelly, why stay? What are your reasons for staying? For me personally, mm -hmm. at this point in my life, to help others. Tell me more. If I don't have a purpose, when I was younger, my son kept me here. Now my granddaughter keeps me here. But I have struggled with uh, adult depression my whole life and had a suicide attempt when he was five. And it has haunted me for the rest of my life. Luckily, it wasn't blown out of proportion they feel because I was in an abusive relationship that it was a bit of a call for help. But at the same token, there are many times when I just feel, why bother? I'm a spirit because I believe I'm a spiritual being. And I just figure, how about we just let go of this physical being and move on to something a little happier? So what I have to stay focused with and be honest with for me personally is I have to focus on those around me that need me and who I yet have yet to impart wisdom and to help. Now it's my granddaughter um, and be honest with my husband when those feelings overwhelm me. Another way to ask this, Shelly, what's so good in your life that you want more of it? What is so good in my life that I want more of it? Adventures, time with my granddaughter and my husband is my favorite thing. This year, because of COVID, we bought a little motorhome and I grew up RVing and now I've turned my husband into an RVer. So he has clearly stated that yeah, the cruising, not so much, but honey, we're our veers now. You go, buddy. So he fishes and I recover and read a book, but I do enjoy that. It, it actually brings me a lot of joy. My podcasting, I anchor to this and I have for five and a half years because it brings me a huge amount of joy and it anchors my need to be helping others. What just happened? Anybody listening to this, anybody watching this is going to notice as soon as you tapped into your reasons for staying, your whole demeanor changed, your face lit up, your voice changed. What happened in your brain? Okay, if we could just do a picture, dopamine got released. And from a neuroplasticity point of view, what we know happened, all of that energy that was invested in the old pattern around suicide and suicidal thoughts, all that electricity got sucked away and put into a brand new neural pathway labeled reasons for staying. Mm -hmm. What you just did by starting to build out that neuro network is that you reset your reticular activating system, that filter in your brain. So now when you have thoughts of leaving, mm -hmm. they're going to bump up against a filter that says reasons for staying. Oh, I like that. And here's how it works so fast. Okay. You thought of these yourself. You spoke them out loud. You heard yourself say them. You have engaged multiple senses, which is how beliefs were formed when we were babies, mm. engaging all of our senses. So you've engaged your brain the way your brain is designed to work. Oh, and by the way, we snuck it in on them. You did this for everybody listening because of something called mirror neurons. As soon as you started through the questions with me, mm -hmm. everyone else's brain started playing along. And when you hit your reasons for staying, mm -hmm. so did their brains and their brains started matching up. Oh, is that my reason? I have this reason. And so they started building out 
a file folder in their brains labeled reasons for staying. So you just help everybody listening to this build a buffer between themselves and an edge that they may not have even known they were near. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is the point of this podcast on days like this. Um, but I don't think I ever would have articulated it quite that way, but that's such a simple thing. It's, it's actually a social experiment. You know, we all stand and look up, then other people join you, they'll all look up and they're like, why are we looking up? Because we can't help ourselves from joining in and relating to what's happening in our sphere, whether we're listening or we're watching. Well, that's a good thing then. That's a really good thing. This conversation is fun and our advocates have a reporting sheet. And then so they tell us what people's reasons for staying are. We're actually building out a book called Reasons for Staying. Because I actually, if I can interrupt, I love that yeah. term. I'm sorry. I've never actually yeah. heard someone put it that way, staying or leaving. And I prefer that to someone saying, I'd like to kill myself. Um, like I say, I've struggled sometimes with having honesty with my own husband when I have, have had very mm -hmm. bad times, but leaving and staying, I like that. We went through a lot of training and a lot of uh, split testing and conversations to distill it down to the essence, to take away all of the triggering emotional crap that's all judgment and blame and shame based. Mm -hmm. We cleared it all out. And that's how we came up with the words. Oh, I like that very, very oh. much. They're kind, they're specific they build a mental image immediately and they make it relatable to the person. Like to me, it's very personal now. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm, I'm either going to stay and raise my son or mm -hmm. I'm going to leave him to the forces that be or I'm going to stay and be an influence in my granddaughter's life or I'm going to choose to leave. And that's just not an option for me. Every mm -hmm. time I think about her and staying. You know, building out these simple, and I can't take credit for this, believe it or not, the first time I ever heard it explained this clearly was in a country song by Roy Clark. And the country song is right or left at Oak Street. It's the choice I make every day. And I don't know which takes more courage, the staying or the running away. I know that song. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was the... I mean, this is the kind so of, true. I love inspiration that, that everybody's always seen and they didn't realize what it could mean. For me, that song is why we chose the title of the book that we did, which is Make It a Great Day. The choice is yours. Okay. There's so that's no judgment. We came into this with removing other people's judgments, opinions, and expectations from the conversation. We call this putting on emotional Teflon so that other people's stuff slides right off of us. And once we could do that for ourselves, we figured out how to take it into the world. Oh, once you learn to do it for yourself. So this was something you and your daughter had to work through, didn't you? Oh, yes. As a depression survivor, um, I survived two bouts of clinical depression in my adulthood. Mm. This is what started me down the road of being a stress management consultant. I studied everything I could figure out. Western medicine could get me stable, mm -hmm. you know, counseling therapy and medication. Yep. Eastern medicine could get me more stable. I traded into mm -hmm. energy, mindfulness, and meditation. Yep. Five years later, I've got certifications as an energetic healer and no cure because even in Eastern medicine with its history, they don't talk in terms of a cure. That led me to study the mind because I had the body and the spirit. So mm -hmm. then I went into, I have a passing knowledge of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, and I became a mediator in the transformative style. So I only am interested in mediating the conversation that happens behind your eyes and between your ears. Okay. Hence again, why you're back in the first step, not where everybody else is in the system. I mean, the fundraiser, the medical system, everyone is after the event. Mm -hmm. after All right. The well done. So the fun part about this was how much I struggled at that level. Okay. I had body, mind, and spirit. And everything was fine as long as I was holding still. The minute I tried a new relationship, something new in my business, something like, 
it was like riding a three-legged elephant. It was a herky, jerky, emotional ride. And that was my clue that what was missing was the emotions. Okay. So then I studied um, the emotions. I went into the Society of Emotional Intelligence and learned how to put all four of those pieces, which is why everything that we do has four pieces. We call it taming the elephant in the room. An elephant Mm. has four legs for a reason. So (laughs) everything we do has four components, like four wheels on a car. Yeah. It makes it where it's easy for people to grasp. Here's what most people do. What's that? They have a flat tire. They have a tire that's really low in air, body, mind, spirit, or emotion. And instead of going directly at it, because they're not really sure what the cause is, Mm -hmm. they will pump up the other three tires, you know? (laughs) That's human. That's classic human uh, sociology. It's just, I watch something with people and just think, hmm. I go hmm a lot some days, (laughs) but that's very true, isn't it? Yes. It's very, very true. And yes. our society supports it. You know, we, we are hardwired to avoid what causes us pain, mental, yes. emotional, or physical pain. We're hardwired to avoid that. And so it's not always easy to look at what the true cause is. What's the actual causal factor at the root? And having invested a great deal of time, talent, and treasure trying to figure this out for myself, what I realized is that at its root cause, Mm -hmm. it's simple. The root cause is not trauma. The root cause is the inability to shift the meaning I assigned at the times I don't even remember. That's right. And then it becomes a subconscious loop. And that most people never want to face. I mean, I've been dealing with this for a couple of years myself over a few things. I am a root cause person. That's why I struggle with the medical system when I, when I developed severe fibromyalgia is like, do not give me drugs and tell me to go home. I want to know how, who, why, where, where is it going? How am I managing it? What did it come from? Where did it come from? And I'm like that with everything. And I teach my granddaughter, what do we do? Question everything, grandma. Yes, that's right. Because that's not how we're raised and our culture is not that way. So not only are we one way hardwired, I believe society, then we're all brainwashed, you know, as we, you know, accept the narrative. And now someone like you comes along and it's like, I need, I need to take you all out of that step to the right or left, whichever way you want to put it and view what's truly face the monster in the room. That's how we ended up with doing something that really pissed off a few people. Okay. So so tell, us, tell me about that. Here's the elephant in the room. Um, you do a lot of marketing. You know, business people do a lot of marketing. Okay. Have you ever had pushback on your message? Oh, yes, of course. Biggest pushback. Got an email. Mm-hmm. Your message hit me like a slap in the face. How dare you put suicide prevention and fun in the same sentence? Suicide prevention is a daily battle to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And I went, Okay, this got sent to one of my speakers. Okay. And my team and the speaker handled it. And I took a step back and I went, what do I believe is true? Mm -hmm. And I sent it out to my speakers. I wrote a response. I sent it out to all my speakers that were coming on that next summit. And I said, okay, I want you to know we're going controversial. Here's what happened. Here's how I plan to respond. What do you think? Because if they wanted to not show up, that would be fine. Okay. I'm, I'm not, you know, they don't have to believe what I You're going to surrender to whatever happens. Brilliant. I got two responses. It was really interesting. Nobody else commented. I got two responses and it was like two sides of a coin. The first response was Jackie, you have to call it a symposium, not a show. I run the suicide prevention show. You, you'll never be taken seriously by the mental health community, by the medical community or the education community. You cannot have fun and suicide prevention in the same sentence. That was response number one. Okay. Response number two was, Jackie, I think if you word it this way, arrange your message this way, it'll have more power. I took the liberty of wordsmithing it. What do you think? What ended up happening was an article on LinkedIn. Your message hit me like a slap in the face. And I addressed both this man's pain. 
because for him as a suicide attempt survivor, it was a daily battle. And I explained, you're working with intervention specialists. Mm -hmm. It's past the point of prevention. You're in the world of intervention. And we are grateful for every intervention specialist out there because without them, my daughter might not still be alive. Fair enough. And we're a pure prevention provider. We're here to help people never need to be talked off a ledge because we're going to help them build a buffer that keeps them away from the edge. And if our message that while suicide is certainly serious, suicide prevention can be seriously fun. If that message pushes you away from us and into the waiting arms of an intervention specialist, our message is doing its job. Good for you. Good for he you. actually came on the summit as a guest, came into our evening party and got into a discussion, having listened to the speakers and the interviews over the course of the day and came back for our next summit. And I interviewed him. He is now standing up in Toastmaster events, speaking his story because Excellent. he realized that his silence was part of the problem. Mm -hmm. We've discovered that silence when it comes to suicide mm -hmm. is not golden. It's okay. deadly. And in what way? Who's being silent? Someone struggling with suicidal thoughts. If they believe, like my daughter believed, mm -hmm. that if she shared the thought, she would be a burden on the family. Mm. The reasons we are told that people don't speak up fall into some very simple categories. I don't want my family to worry. Right. I don't want someone to think I need to see somebody that I'm sick or broken. I don't want to risk being put into a three-day psychiatric hold, which is the reporting law in many states in our mm -hmm. country. And it's just, it's just the blues it'll pass. Not a big right. deal. All four of those compound the problem. Add to that, that if we're worried about someone in our family, we're hardwired to avoid the uncomfortable so we don't bring it up. Of and course. if we do bring it up, if you're a parent, how many parents in the room, you don't have to raise your hands, how many <laughs> of you have had a hit and run conversation with your teenager? You know, I think everyone's had at least one, yeah. or they're not being totally honest. Or you sat your kid down to have one of the talks that my daughter made fun of in the front of the room. Right. We had to find a way to avoid both of those scenarios. I sat down to have the, the talk about sex with my oldest daughter. And she said, sure, mom, absolutely. What do you want to know? Our kids are getting and massive you fall off the couch. Of, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, our kids are getting massive amounts of information, younger and younger and oh, younger. Yes, yes. So and, and we don't have the benefit of public service announcements. Do you remember public service announcements? The A? Absolutely. Yeah. This is your brain. Crack the egg. This is your brain on drugs. drugs. My favorite was two parents talking to a 13-year-old. Oh, by the way, we never recommend two-on-one. It's just oh, not. Okay. okay. But in the public service announcement, it was two parents, mom and dad, talking to their daughter. And they're saying, honey, nobody's saying sex is bad. We're just saying that at 13, it'll ruin your dream. Those kinds of public service announcements happened when we were all gathered around the one screen mm -hmm. so they could trigger a conversation. That's why they helped. Oh. Well, we don't have one screen anymore. Right. And everyone's alone with their screens for the most part. And there aren't any public service announcements on public airwaves because everything is private streamed now. Mm -hmm. So you're getting commercials, but not PSAs. So gotcha. public service announcements are what we're doing with our summits, what we're doing with our book, what we're doing with our little snippets, our interviews. We are getting a message out that there is a way to respectfully, mm -hmm. safely invite a teenager to help you practice your guide, what just happened in their brain. Ah. Help, help, I get to help, I get to help. And the two-year-old inside of them is going, oh, goody, goody, I get to help. Because that's how two-year-olds respond to being invited to help. Yeah. 
we get that trained out of us, but that wiring is still there. Mm, okay. And when you, as soon as you invite them to help you practice the guide, one, they know it's not about them. Mm-hmm. They know it's about the mission. They know it's about you struggling. You need some help. Well, good. Parents need help. Nice of you to admit it, mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, it's not personal to them. Right. And it opens a way for them to break the silence without risking any of those things they're afraid of. Zero risk. They're not risking being judged because Mm -hmm. we have it built into the guide that there's no probing. They're not risking having their privacy challenged. They're not risking anything with these questions. And the minute they start answering question four, oh, and by the way, here's what's so cool. What's that? It doesn't matter if they lie. When they start giving reasons for staying, their brain is still listening and hearing them speak that they have, quote, reasons for staying because that's the question that they were answering. So that file folder is being built out even if they're fabricated. Okay. Okay. I hope everyone is really paying attention to that little piece of nugget because most of us as parents are like, that was just BS and they just lied right to my face. (laughs) And in this moment, you don't have to care. We don't care. No, we don't have to care. It takes away all of the challenges. Now you don't have to think about, are they lying or not? You don't have to, you know, it it, it took away all of the stress on a parent. And what we realized is that if Mm -hmm. parents are resistant, we'll just teach the teens because it doesn't matter which side of the conversation you're on, whether you're the person answering the question or the person asking the question. Mirror neurons are mirror neurons. One person looks up, everybody looks up. (laughs) One person answers the question, what are your reasons for staying? Why stay? Mm -hmm. Everybody's brain, including the person with the guide, their brain starts answering those questions. Okay. That is brilliant information. I'm sorry, but it really, really is. I mean, and I, I have guests on the show and I've also considered myself to really have delved into a lot of not specific to suicide, but the yeah. brain subconscious connection that, you know, what our cognitive dissidents, what we hear and what we believe and what we're truly seeing and why they're not aligning. Um, but the, some of that is just brilliant. This is what came out of my 30 years of stress management training, my pulling in all of the things that I've studied. I can't take credit for any aspect of it. I can tell you that every aspect of it was fully vetted by people smarter than me. I just realized that they would all fit in this one car. Perfect. Just because you're the facilitator of all the information doesn't make it not your thing. Yeah. it's, it's it, This it's is still like, your accomplishment. You know, it's funny. The tools that we have and that we're using mm-hmm. are the tools that my clients love. That's how They ended up just morphing from the business side into this talk and this collection of pillars, the four pillars. Nothing's ever wasted. It's how we ended up creating the gift. We call it, you can't do it wrong. And okay. that's the website people can get it at. You can't Good. do it wrong.com. We like simple. It was created while I was visiting my oldest daughter in right outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I was there over Christmas and I woke up and I just started writing and I just started writing. And when I was done, I was like, oh, that looks really cool. And I'm like, hey, Katie, can, I just wrote this. Could I test this out? And we went back and forth. I tested it with her sisters. And all of a sudden, what came out of it was a, a way to ascertain The one thing that people don't ask us, do you know yourself? Mm. Do you like yourself? Do you trust yourself? And if so, how much? Mm -hmm. And so we created the know, like, and trust factor assessment. And what we discovered is it gives people a way to see themselves through the eyes of kindness. And it also really brought home for me what was wrong with my business at the time. You know, we're told people do business with people they know, like, and trust. Absolutely. The biggest thing that gets in the way of other people knowing, liking, and trusting you is Mm -hmm. if you've got a low score. Exactly. Because you're the common denominator. Yep. I've always tell people when I'm coaching, it's like, 
uh, I listen to other speakers complain about the fact that they're so worried that their message is no different than anybody else's. I'm like, did you think my message I something I invented? No, it's all about you do you and someone's going to relate to how you deliver the message because that's the deal. If you're oh. willing to put yourself out here, there, someone will find you. Mm -hmm. Someone will find you. I, you know, it's, it's fun. It, it really is. I've been around some really smart, smart people. And when it came to taking my message into the world way before the Teen Suicide Prevention Society, before I stood on mm. the TEDx stage, okay. I okay. was at a three-day event about speaking. One of the speakers was a lady known as Fly Girl, Bernice. And Bernice was, has, is well known as a speaker now. She was the first African-American female fighter pilot in the U.S. military. She has a great talk. She comes out in a flight suit, pulls it off. She's got you know, a business suit underneath it. You know, it she, she does a really fun talk. And then she did Q&A. And I went up to the microphone and I'm like, I'm not the first anything that I know of. Right. Why would someone listen to me if I took a stage? And she asked me if I knew Lisa Nichols. And I'm like, Lisa Nichols in The Secret. She, she was one of the speakers in The Secret. And I'm like, yeah, I know Lisa Nichols. And she says, do you know that Lisa Nichols' whole story is that she was a single mom? And I went, I'm a single mom. I was raised by a single mom. You mean that actually means that somebody would listen to me as opposed to what I was raised to believe, which is that I was raised by a single mom before have, having a single mom yes. in the town was normal. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was the, um, you know, if there were tracks down the middle of the street, mm -hmm. we were not on the right side of them because my mom was a divorced woman back in the 60s. Prior generation. My husband dealt with the same thing. He says, you have to understand, I was the only kid on the street and in my whole class and group of friends that had divorced parents. Mm-hmm. Because it's a different generation. It's a very different generation. Yeah. And what it left me with was an underlying societal shame for something I had no control over. Exactly. And understanding where these beliefs come from, where guilt, regret, judgment, mm -hmm. blame, and shame, and looking at the factors that create them, and then creating the tools that mitigate those factors. So when right. I say we get to root cause, we go there. <laughs> I mean, we are having so much fun. As a matter of fact, tomorrow night, I get to teach how to build boundaries and bounce bullies. It is one of my favorite pillars. Fabulous. I really like, sorry, I'm just going to zip back to that because I just yeah. loved your bully analogy. It's so true. We're not teaching our kids to stand up. And yet there was this cute little, probably a Nicholas Sparks movie, to be perfectly honest. It's one of those sappy things uh, where someone always, of course, dies. Um, and the, the girl comes up and she's being made fun of. and she just looks at them and, and there was a third person involved. And she says, well, I just ignore them because bullies give up if they don't have an audience. <laughs> that line has always stuck with me. Little, it was little Mandy Moore before she became an adult. She was still like 17 when she did that movie. And it was like, that is so true. If they don't get their emotional needs met, they will go somewhere else. The problem is that we're not taught how to prevent things from escalating. There are right. two really, really good books on the subject. The first one is an old one. Mm -hmm. it, have you ever had a book form a relationship with you across a store? No, I can't say I have. I was walking through one of those big box stores and I saw the word no in red letters on the front of a book. And I walked over and the title was, when I say no, I feel guilty. Great title. Yeah. And it was not a sappy book. It's an assertiveness training book from back in the day. It taught hard skills, hard skills. And it talked about the escalation mm -hmm. and how people are trained to escalate things, to manipulate. You know, it's the power of NLP before NLP. This is predates all of that. And then I had the good fortune to participate in a speaking event where the agenda is set that day. It's called a board rush. And anybody who has something to say rushes up to the board with their topic and you put it on a grid for where the rooms are and the times are. And anybody who wants to hear that topic just signs up and goes to that room. End of the day, only one room left open. The place is thinning out. Two slots left. Somebody put up why that was their topic. I couldn't resist. I put up my favorite phrase. Why not? 
So we got told that the two of us had to just tag team that last hour instead of doing two 30 minutes. And that's how I met Jennifer Hancock. She's an amazing psychologist. She's an amazing humanist. She wrote a book called The Bully Vaccine. And it's for kids ages eight and up to be read with their parents. And it teaches the exact same skills from that assertiveness training book as applied to bullies. I'm fascinated. I have bought and distributed more copies of that book than probably anything else. And the same is true with when I say, no, I feel guilty. I can't keep it on my bookcase. I keep giving it away. So I just keep buying them. The power of the skills, the skills are there. They're readily available. They're not expensive. They take practice Mm -hmm. because you're retraining your brain. That's why I teach habits because people think everything's just a one of it's like, it's not, it's a repeating and a repetitive process. Subconscious of the body need to learn. And there are now shortcuts because we know more about neuroplasticity. Than right. Absolutely. When Harvard Medical School did their little published study, it was in 2016, they published it January 2017. And it is the piano experiment. Okay. What they did was they brought in a group of random volunteers, did a scan of their brain. Mm-hmm. gave them a short piece of music and a piano. And when the, they could play it without looking at the music, when they had the music memorized, they scanned their brains again. This was one of the chinks in the armor of a fixed brain metaphor. Mm. This is where neuroplasticity came from because they realized they built out new, they built out what they said couldn't be done. Right. Somebody right. said that it couldn't be done. Well, they built out new neural matter. They were like, whoa, well, this is Harvard. So they had to, of course, try again. This time they changed the rules a little bit. They brought in another group, totally random group, did the original scan, gave them the same piece of music, you know, good scientific method, controlling your factors. But this time they didn't give them a piano. They had them imagine playing. Okay. And when they could imagine playing the song all the way through without Mm -hmm. the paper, they scanned their brains again. And their brains built out the exact same. Olympic athletic coaches have known this since the Olympics were formed. Guided imagery works. Why? Because you're engaging more senses. Your body cannot tell the difference. Now, that's the good news. Your body can't tell the difference between something that's happening or something you're imagining that's happening. And when you're doing it for stretching, for playing music, for succeeding in an Olympic event, all is great. When your body can't tell the difference between a real threat, a perceived threat, or a remembered threat, now we're talking the definition of PTSD. Right, exactly. Because you're reliving a threat that's not even valid any longer over and over and over again in the current time. And without control. Right. And because people didn't understand how their brains work, they didn't understand that the need to cure that was so, so incredible. I mean, and that is not hard to do now because now we have ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm very passionate about bringing my work, the Teen Suicide Prevention Society and that body of work mm-hmm. is my passion project. Okay. And then there's Emotional Resilience Mastery, which is the cornerstone of my business, where we do permanent resolution of negative emotional history. Oh, excellent. Very fast. And no one gets re-traumatized because nobody has to open the bag of trash and tell me what's in it. It's the culmination of my life's work journey to figure out how to cure my own depression. Mm -hmm. I've been depression-free and medication-free since 2003. Congratulations. That's very, very important. And that's where most people just look at me or other people and say, "Mm, I I get it a lot. That can't really be real. I just want my medication, especially the prior generation. My mom's generation is very just medical focused. They were not proactive. No, not even remotely. They lived in a different world because they didn't go to a doctor except when they had a broken leg. That is very true as well. And so they were not dealing with what we're dealing with now. Right. 
you know, we're dealing with what corporate America in 2020 labeled as the looming mental health tsunami. Mm. And it's no longer looming. No. The number of people suffering from adrenal fatigue. Oh, by the way, adrenal fatigue did not exist 20 years ago. The Just number 20? People, really? I have not been able to wow. find a reference for you earlier than that. So if anybody can disprove me, they can feel free to fact check. That yeah, is... the, first, the first time I ever heard of it was 20 years ago. Okay. And it was very, very rare. People started using words like, I blew out my adrenals. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Pardon me, but it was like, what? So it's clinical term was adrenal fatigue. Mm -hmm. And it's what happens when, remember what I said about the body can't tell the difference between a real threat and a perceived threat? Absolutely. Here's what it's like. Imagine we all have a common ancestor named Og, the caveman. Og comes out in the morning and he stretches, shaking bush, boom, back in his cave. If you could freeze frame, what just happened was Og's body was immediately flooded with adrenaline, epinephrine, cortisol. What did that do? The blood rushed to his arms and his legs so he could immediately fight or flee. He gets into his cave. What does he do? <gasps> he takes some deep breaths, which by the way, evolutionarily sound, they trigger sensors at the base of the lungs. That's why all the breath work works yeah, exactly and it tells the body you're safe and it produces the chemicals that counterbalance the stress chemicals his body goes back to normal and he decides he'll go out later what happened shaking bush what did og know about a shaking bush this is the natural negative bias of the brain probably Larry got too close to shaking bush <laughs> got eaten exactly now, this is what and so that we, if it wasn't for negative feedback og would never have survived and we wouldn't be here you know, purple plant. What do I know about purple plant? Last time I ate it, I got sick. I'm not eating the purple plant. You know, it was a natural negative bias feedback loop and we still have it. Our mm -hmm. brains naturally go to the negative. Nothing wrong with your brain. Don't let anybody fool you. Your brain's operating the way it's supposed to. But here's the problem. I don't have very many real dinosaurs in my life right now, but I used to have a boss that would stand behind my chair. And my brain, boom, he would come in, ask me a question. My brain shut down because I didn't understand how the system worked. Mm, okay. And I'd mutter, y'all, I'll find out or whatever. And he'd go away. Now, while he was standing there, was I taking a deep, slow breath? Oh, no, I was holding my breath. He left. What did I do? Like, Og. <sighs> and then, you know, that blood that went to the arms and legs of Og? It came from the higher regions of the brain where we have memory and reasoning and speech because you don't need it up here. Og did not need to have his, all of his functions and curiosity, he needed to focus. So the blood went into the brainstem and this prevented Og from bleeding to death if he mm -hmm. happened to get a head injury, which was common when you were wrestling with a saber-toothed tiger. What happened in his body is nothing short of a miracle. Two systems shut down. And this explains a lot of the immune issues we're having today because the first system that shut down is his self-healing. His mm. body didn't need to divert any energy to healing the scratch he got yesterday when he's trying to avoid becoming lacerated today. I mean, if you're trying to avoid becoming lacerated, what percentage of your resources do you want available? Ten? All of them, please. <laughs> All of them. But the other system that shut down explains why we are seeing such a massive surge in obesity. The system that shut down was digestion because mm. we don't need to divert resources. Og didn't need to divert resources to digesting his breakfast when he's trying to avoid becoming breakfast. Exactly. So it made absolute evolutionary sense. Now, what's true for us today? We're getting hit with stressors left and right. Our cortisol is up. Our adrenaline is up. And that means that our immune system is depressed. Our digestion is messed up. This is one of the contributing factors in my mind to a lot of the rise in digestive disorders that have come up. They have all kinds of names. The reality is that if somebody said it's as simple as just relaxing, giving your body a chance to come out of that, to reset. 
A planned program of deep breathing does more to reset your body and brain than any amount of chemicals that you can put in because your body will actually produce the chemicals you need if you get out of the way and yes. work with your body the way your body's designed to work. So that's my soapbox. I was uh, diagnosed with it many years ago. I left a large corporate. I've been self-employed in the finance business. I was a bookkeeper and uh, later a senior accountant for years, but I took a, took a contract with a big telco company. Mm, shouldn't have done that. And after six and a half years, three, literally three weeks later, I couldn't get out of bed. So I tittle off to my <laughs> chiropractor and my natural people. And they do tests on me. He goes, your adrenals are at 14%. What have you been doing? I was literally living on adrenaline for eight months. Mm -hmm. The job was grossly stressful. I hated every minute of it. I was so grateful to finally be out of there. And then I had to spend those months all over again, getting everything normal, supplementation, rest. Definitely did more of yoga, got into breath work, got into tapping because I needed to calm my central nervous system down mm -hmm. so drastically. It wasn't even funny. Og's system was so elegantly designed that his body returned to homeostasis. It returned to baseline in seconds because, <sighs> and shake it off, allow the energy to dissipate. All the mm -hmm. books by Peter Levine talk about the physicality of releasing emotion. And then we've got what we're doing. So here's what's happened. You get triggered. Mm -hmm. Your body releases cortisol, adrenaline, epinephrine, all of these chemicals. And instead of taking a deep breath, running, flee, the fight or flight was physiologically encoded to use the big muscles that would allow you then to counterbalance. The runner's high. Mm -hmm, exactly. What do we do? We get behind the wheel of a car, sit in front of a computer screen and don't move our muscles at all which means that those chemicals have to naturally degrade, which can take 24 to 72 hours. And by then you're already back at the stressful job. <laughs> I was going to say 15 minutes, half an hour. How long does it take before you're triggered again? Then you're not starting at baseline. You're already here and now you're layering it up here. And that's what we're living with. Ah. We have created our own culture of stress. And so the cure for that is really, really simple. We call it taming the elephant in the room. And so that's what both of my companies are focused on. One is private work and teaching coaches mm -hmm. and consultants how to use this with their clients to get them out of the stress mess in the first session, because that's what we want. We want people to master the basic skill of being able to switch off their stress response mm -hmm. in the first session. The, for, for my personal work, they're best off just to shoot me an email, just Jackie at JackieSimmons.com. Okay. That's the easy way. For the suicide prevention, it's TeenSuicidePreventionSociety.com. And the gift, we have two gifts. The first one is the no like, and trust factor. And that's okay. YouCan'tDoItWrong.com. Okay. The www.YouCan'tDoItWrong.com. And the other. If anyone wants to have the talk and start suicide proofing their 20, and I'll explain that in just a second. We call okay. it the power of 20. If you want to start suicide proofing your friends and family, go to talksthatsavelives.com. Apply for a grant. We can give you level one training for free because of our sponsors and donors. Oh, wow. So we have that available for everyone. They can have level one training. They can have the talk that saves lives, the script and the training classes for free with guided practice classes. That's amazing, Jackie. Thank that is amazing. The work you do is amazing. That gift is, is just second to none. In closing, you made a comment about how law of attraction, what has that got to do with suicide prevention? All right, I'm going to tell you what most people don't talk about. What's that? Have you ever tried not to think about an elephant? No, no, especially after you've mentioned it. It's in my brain now. If it'll be there, it's probably till dinner time. When someone tries not to think a suicidal thought because they don't want to worry their family, they're actually doubling down on the yes. thought because now they're thinking about not thinking about it. Yes. Somebody said, actually, for me, it was a triple down. 
Now, your subconscious mind is elegantly designed to bring about what you think about. The more you think about it, the more your subconscious mind starts making plans and looking for opportunities. This is the law of attraction in action when you have conscious control over what you're thinking. Most of us don't have conscious control because we were not taught conscious control. When you are afraid of a thought and you're now you're struggling, yeah, you're thinking about thinking about it and you're not going to think about it and you're not going to think about it, but that means you're thinking about it more. Your subconscious mind notices. Oh, yes. And in a teen, this is a particular problem because part of their brain is missing. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until they're over 24 years of age. What's in the prefrontal cortex? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I've always heard system. it was 18, mm, 24. I wish. Here's two problems. Without a prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. you don't have perception. You uh, have time. You don't have a pause button. Teens are impulsive by nature because the brain is not fully developed. Okay. And all it takes is for subconscious plan to cross opportunity. And they're in action. They're gone. And the ones who survive say, I don't know what happened because literally their conscious brain doesn't have the chance to kick in. Oh, that is a, that is a fantastic visual and analogy. Actually, please, if you've got anyone in your life and you, uh, my audience comes in when they know their subjects, they want to hear that is brilliant. I've always, you know, I raised my son. I understand the concept of teenagers and keeping those bumper pads in place because they're not, I've done this. I've read the studies, how the brain is not fully developed, but to have that's a fantastic description. The action, because it's just not there yet. It's just not there yet. This is why we have jump nets on bridges. Right. So we're having an expectation of our youngest or next generation that shouldn't even be there because that expectation doesn't align with the science or the physicality of teenagers. If you go back in the day before we invented 12 years of school and college, Mm -hmm. before that was invented, young people became apprentices. And then in their 20s, they became journeymen. Right. Okay. We were not expecting them to make life-altering decisions in their teenage years. Now we expect our teenagers to choose what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives. This is insane, in my opinion. Oh, actually, I'm glad to hear someone else say that because I think it is as well. The pressure it put on me as a teenager, and I was a fairly mature, really, if you ask my parents, I was like 16 going on 40, but um, I still found it just, it was overwhelming. Hence the eating disorder and a whole bunch of other crap. But Mm -hmm. wow. Wow. We could talk for another hour and how you think we could change that in society, but I say you come back again. I think that that's (laughs) a great idea. Okay. I'm going to make a note of that. Okay. So sorry that you had two, two things you were pointing out though. The other one is the little known fact that when you go on this journey with the team, they are first not going to trust you. Okay. The second, they're not going to want to talk to you. The third is they're probably struggling. I went to a local high school and shared our project, shared what we were doing Mm -hmm. and got inspired at the end of it. And I asked the teens in the room, do you have a story? Do you have a friend who's tried or died? And they started one after the other. I got to my car and I just cried because it wasn't most of the kids in the room. It was all of them. A hundred percent of the kids in the room had a friend who had tried or died or they had tried. Oh my goodness. And I'm sure their parents would just be as blindsided by that knowledge as I was. Your kids, parents, your kids know suicide. Oh, and by the way. Our kids know a lot actually that we, I think we stay ourselves willfully ignorant about. It's how we stay sane. Mm. So it's and our coping me- mechanism as adults, as parents. Our coping mechanisms, okay. the same as it is for any other stage, we are hardwired to avoid what's uncomfortable. And the thought that kept me from talking with my daughter, would you want to know what could cause your child so much mental and emotional pain that they thought dying was better than living? Yeah, I didn't no. want to know. Yeah. No, so I, I didn't ask. That. 
and understanding what I lived through the day my daughter took the stage. Because when she wound up her talk, she wound up her talk by saying, on my suicide avoidant journey, I've learned tons of coping skills. Now I want to teach those skills to teens before they need them. Yes, before they need them. Oh my God. Shelly, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I've had Everybody, trouble keeping a dry eye during this whole interview. You know, they, they gave her a standing ovation and they rushed up and they hugged her and thanked her for being so vulnerable, so willing, so brave. And in the back of the room, I was frozen. I was totally torn between pride for her bravery and guilt and shame of course. from my cowardice. And then it hit me, 3,000 teens a day. This means that every day over 6,000 parents start to live the guilt nightmare that I live. Right. Every day over 20,000 grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, and sisters start to live the guilt nightmare. And every day, hundreds of thousands of classmates, teachers, boyfriends, girlfriends, and neighbors start to live the guilt nightmare that I lived, all probably just as blindsided by it as I had been. Mm -hmm. And then I wondered, what if Stephanie was right? What if the key to stopping teen suicide was as simple as having the talk about suicide before you think they need it, before your kid is struggling with suicidal thoughts? Shelly, the missing link, something so simple and obvious that professionals have tripped over it. Mm. Yep. Simple and obvious, I'm going to date myself. Simple and obvious, like putting wheels on luggage. We put a man right. on the moon before we put wheels on luggage. You know, what about ketchup in squeezable bottles? Right. You know, instead of the knife yeah. in the, yeah. I mean, Can you get on. the hinds out, please? Yeah, you know, I mean, I know. simple and obvious. I know, it's very true, isn't it? And that's how the talk to stop suicidal thoughts got born okay. was from that one realization that what if it's not about stopping suicide, it's only about stopping suicidal thinking from getting stuck in someone's head. Oh, I love that. And that ties in again to so much of what we teach on this podcast about your mental choices and the, and the choice of being mentally strong and the choice of choosing. Again, leave or stay. Love it. There we go. Is there anything you want to leave the listeners with today? Three things. Don't wait. Okay. Break the silence. Have the talk. Okay. Everyone, you heard that. I will have all of Jackie's uh, contact information in the show notes like I normally do. As I tell you so many, many times, you are not alone. And I'll catch you on the flip side. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda. Stay connected with us directly through livingwellwithshell.com and Instagram at livingwellwithshell. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through shelly at livingwellwithshell.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Thank you. And remember, willpower will only get you so far if you don't have a plan. <laughs>